We are live. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on air. I'm your host for this hangout, Brianna Donaldson. I'm the Director of Special Projects at the American Institute of Mathematics, and I'm also the Director of the Math Teacher Circle Network. Uh, today is June 30th, 2016, and I'm excited to be here with educators and colleagues who will be thinking together about what makes a good problem. We'll discuss the difference between a problem and an exercise, and reasons why good problems can lend themselves well to differentiated learning. Um, I'll let everyone introduce themselves shortly, but a few more things before we get started. For those of you watching this Hangout Live, we encourage you to post thoughts and ideas and questions via the Q&A feature embedded in the video player, or you can tweet questions and follow along using the hashtag ConnectedLearning. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. We'll also be live tweeting this conversation at innovates underscore ed. Now, let's give everyone a chance to introduce themselves. Uh, Paul, do you want to start us off? Sure. Hi, I'm Paul Zeitz. Uh, I work at the University of San Francisco. I've been there 24 years, and before that I was a high school teacher, and I've just been uh, doing math circle-y things for longer than I can remember practically um, with uh, kids and with teachers. So it's a very important part of my life, and I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you. Um, Josh, do you want to go next? Okay, I'm Joshua Zucker. Uh, I've been working with Math Teacher Circles since they started in 2006, and I wrote an article for the newsletter on uh, what makes a good problem and how to come up with good problems, so this is a particular area of interest of mine, and I'm really excited to be uh, participating in this conversation. Um, Chris, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I'm Chris Bolognese. I'm a high school teacher uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and this is our third year now um, having a math teacher circle called the Columbus Math Teacher Circle, um, and I'm really honored to have a chance to work with some of these great folks in the chat. Um, we had um, a great one-week session where we learned what a math teacher circle is um, and given a chance to both participate um, with great tasks that we're going to talk about, about what makes a great problem, um, and also had a chance to talk about the pragmatic aspect of how do you start a circle, what are all the issues with sponsoring, and um, getting different people involved in promotion. So um, I'm excited to talk about that if any of you are interested in starting one. Great. Thanks, Chris. Fawn, uh, can you introduce yourself too, please? Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Fawn Nguyen, and I teach math at Mesa Union uh, in Somas, California, the Southern California, and last year was my 12th year at Mesa, but I've been in the classroom for the last 25 years, and I've been part of the Thousand Oaks Math Teacher Circle in uh, Thousand Oaks for the last four years, and um, I think it's the best one in the country, right, Paul? <laughs> Very good. Thanks so much to all of you for being here today. Um, so. Before um, we sort of jump in here, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what makes, uh, or sorry, about uh, what a math teacher circle is, because I know some people watching may not be as familiar with math teacher circles. And then we'll get into um, the core discussion about what makes a good problem. So I have just a couple slides here um, that I just wanted to share with you. Um, Okay, can you all see that? Yep, looks great. Okay, thanks, Josh. Okay, so um, so a math teacher circle, um, it's a model, uh, it's a professional learning community, really, and it's, it connects uh, K-12 mathematics teachers with mathematicians, often from higher education, um, in a professional learning community that really focuses on problem solving. This is a community that's really about teachers as learners and about connecting uh, people who teach mathematics at different 
levels in the education system. And it's really about exploring and learning mathematics um, and, um, and discovering some really um, cool mathematics, but also learning a lot about the process of doing mathematics. So um, the core features of math teacher circles, there are regular meetings, usually once uh, a month or so during an academic year. They usually last for you know, two or three hours. The math teacher circles involve both K-12 teachers and higher ed uh, professors, typically. Um, and um, the focus of math teacher circle meetings is on non-routine and mathematically rich problems. And we're going to talk a lot more about that today, uh, about what that, what that means. They focus on mathematical practices, which is, um, you know, this is basically the things that you do when you're doing and thinking about math. Um, so um, just ideas about how to approach problems, uh, sort of a toolbox for problem solving. Um, these are some things that get talked about a lot in math teacher circles. And we'll talk a little bit, I think, about that as well. And most of the time at a math teacher circle meeting is really spent um, doing collaborative investigation of mathematics. And so all this said, okay, so this is, you know, what we say a math teacher circle is about. And this is what a math teacher circle looks like. It's um, really a lot of fun. So these are some pictures from math teacher circle sessions um, that have taken place around the country. And um, so math teacher circles are uh, all over the country. Um, so we have about 90 groups um, in 38 states now, and the people on this Hangout are involved in many different ways in math teacher circles, um, in helping uh, run local math teacher circles and also helping spread, um, spread this model around the United States. And if you're interested in learning more about this, um, I encourage you to check out our website at uh, mathteachercircle.org. So um, let's see. Okay. So that's a little bit about math teacher circles. And so really the heart of a math teacher circle session uh, is a good problem. And so this begs the question, what makes a good problem? And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, a lot today. So, you know, to answer this question, what makes a good problem? Well, first, let's talk about what a problem is. Um, does anyone want to take a stab at talking about what, just defining a problem. Can't find it in textbooks. <laughs> so, and the, I, I think a good way to define a problem is uh, in contrast to an exercise because most people when they're like doing homework, when they're, if you're in school and you're doing homework, you have at the back of the into the chapter there's this thing called, sometimes it's called exercises, sometimes it's called problems, but it's always exercises because it's questions about what just happened in that chapter. So, um, so an exercise is, is a question that you know how to answer. You might not get it right, but you know how to answer. You know, like 7 plus 11, what does it equal? That's an exercise for, for a, you know, a third grader maybe. And if uh, seven times seven raised to the eleventh power, that would be an exercise for a seventh grader. You wouldn't get it right, but uh, uh, but you know how to do it. So a problem, by contrast, is a question that you don't know how to solve when you first see it. And there, and and the key thing about a problem is that it it requires investigation, and that's what mathematics is all about. It it's mathematics is is the investigation of problems. It's fun. Yeah, I, I would, I would just piggyback on that. Um, there's some research out there about cognitive demand. That is ambiguity. So, um, what what I often think of of a problem in a math teacher circle framework is you're almost providing a setting. You're not even necessarily asking questions as much as here's a situation, here's a context, and there's no known procedures. Um, another big part of high cognitive demand, which um, they call doing mathematics is you almost have this sense of uncertainty or anxiety in that it's so unknown, it's so foreign a territory, it's so new that you don't necessarily even know how to start. Um, and we can talk more about problem posing, but I think that really enters into that, that you're asking yourself and you're 
colleagues' questions to even get started. Um, so it's definitely not procedural. It's not known. It's not algorithmic. Yeah, there's that moment of puzzlement when you first see a, a problem where you don't know what's going on. You don't know what to do next. You don't know where you're really even trying to head necessarily, or if you do know where you're trying to get to, you have no idea what kind of paths will lead there, and you're feeling a bit lost at first. And that kind of, of feeling of discomfort, I think, is tying into the anxiety that Chris mentioned. Uh, but that's a really important part of what it means for something to be a problem is that you have to have those uncomfortable feelings of not knowing where you're going or how to get there. And, and so it's... Go on. Well, I just want to pick it back on what Josh said. He said, you know, the, the puzzlement, and that's so important. However, the problem itself is simply stated. Um, it, it's, it, it's accessible. You can get into it. I mean, you just can just understand it, especially when we talk about school children. However, immediately, even though we can understand the problem and what it's asking for, we're still like, oh, God, how do I approach this? So, yeah. The, the only thing I wanted to, to uh, reiterate is that it's very audience-specific. So, uh, you know, one person's problem is another person's exercise. And, and, so, and one of the things that requires great skill with a, a teacher or a practitioner is to get a sense of their audience and to know just the right thing that's going to be, as Fawn says, you know, like an easily stated thing that will hook them but one that will also cause the anxiety that Chris and Josh talked about, but not too much anxiety, because too much anxiety would le leads to paralysis. Just the right amount of anxiety leads to, to a productive investigation. Now I call that the sweet spot of the problem. It's just, just like what you said. Yeah, it really, it really is. Yeah. It's a sweet spot because you know your audience. I was talking with... Uh, Gail Burrill. I'm currently at Park City Math Institute, and I had mentioned that I'm part of this uh, hangout, and she got really excited because a theme of Park City a few years back was what makes a good problem, and uh, she added some things that they had discussed, and all of this that we're saying is related to the mathematical practices as well. Um, she said something that makes a good problem is it's something that's worthwhile talking about. Um, <laughs> so it's it's something that will produce not necessarily controversy, but um, something that really breeds communication, collaboration, something that uh, maybe has multiple representations that um, everyone can learn from, different approaches. Um, so it's something that's not just totally individualized, though I agree with Paul that everyone sort of has their sense of um, what's accessible and what's known. I, I think also... I, I think also that, um, that um, like Fawn was saying, it, it should be easy like to Fawn state. Was, it, it also should be, uh, on, on some levels, not necessarily easy to solve, but easy to tell a story about. So um, when you have a, uh, the, the, the right kind of problem is one that's easy to state, takes a lot of energy and a lot of discussion, and, and but, but then when there's at least some kind of resolution or closure, it's fairly easy for the participants to be able to talk about it with each other or to tell other people and say, well, yeah, what we discovered was X, you know, like, like sort of like a, it, it, a story that has a moral that's very simple and so that you can learn from this problem and, and, and use it for other problems. I, I think that also, um, you know, in, we can talk about things and kids can talk about stuff because they have to. And a good problem, I think, is when kids want to talk about it. They're excited to have that conversation that Chris brought up. Yeah, because it's engaging in that sense that, uh, yeah, I, I'm I don't, not sure how to do this yet, but it's worthy of having a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these are all really great points about, um, you know, about good problems. Um, I don't know, like, um, you know, one thing to think, one thing that I always think about is how do you find these good problems, you know? How do you find problems that have these, you know, that kind of hit these sweet spots, that have stories, 
you know, that really, um, you know, speak to people and, and get people um, engaged kind of at a really, you know, this, this uh, really productive yet, you know, um, way that, that pushes them. So I don't know what, what you all think about that, about finding good problems or creating good problems. Well, this is kind of related to um, just what makes a good problem, and I normally don't see this on any particular list, and I totally understand why, because it's not inherent to the problem. But I think whoever the teacher or the facilitator at a math circle is, um, that it, the, the person, he or, you know, he or she loves, truly cares about the problem, that they just didn't get it from a workshop and just passing it on, but truly had worked and struggled with it on his own. and. Um, that's kind of my, hopefully, that's what I give to my kids, that, you know, I bring it in, and, you know, people who know me, and my students are really tired of hearing me say this is my favorite problem every time I present a problem, because it truly is. I just happen to have lots of favorite problems, but that, that allows it to be nurtured, and um, the conversation can be carried forward with enough scaffolding, because I've struggled with it. I've enjoyed it so much, and I care about it, and, you know, yeah, so does it be insulting to me <laughs> for the kids that, you know, it's like a roll their eyes at the problem or something, so I take this personally, so I think the teacher, the person, you know, delivering the problem is, is passionate about it, and that can be very contagious. Now, Fawn, where, where do you get your problems? What's your source? Math teacher circle. <laughs> um, the math forum, and uh, just over the years, yeah, and... Um, Lots of different sources, but Math Teacher Circle has a bunch. And um, and what I love actually about Math Teacher, sometimes it's frustrating that you you know solutions are not posted, and because that forces me. And uh, when I know when um, I present at workshops and teachers want to know what the solution is, and I said you know you can email me later, but right now I you know let's just work on this and just be patient. And also that brings up the constraints about the classroom. We are so we have a pacing guide. We have that's why it's hard. It's harder for teachers to think about bringing in the classroom because the, the period's 50 minutes. And you're kidding. Uh, we're not going to solve this? No, we're not going to solve it. And it's okay to develop that culture in the classroom. And for the kids, it's, yeah, we may never solve this problem in the school year, and that's okay. Um, and so just, uh, yeah, a math forum has a bunch that I like. And, um, I, you know, most of the problems I like, I've blocked about it. We've done it in the classroom. I've blocked about it. Um, another site, um, the art of problem solving. That's where I've found a few. Yeah. And I don't think that you need a, a, an enormous uh, stockpile of problems also. Um, that, in other words, I don't think that the, the issue here is, oh, man, we need problems. We need to know where to get them. We need to know where there's this, like, magical mother load. You know, I mean, a few good websites will, will have things. But um, I think the, the more important thing is to is to develop your own familiarity with certain types of problems and get a sense of, of what works and what doesn't work and what you can own as a teacher that you can share with, with other people. Um, and I, when I look back on stuff that I've done with math teacher circles over the past um, you know, eight years or so, it's, I, I'm sometimes amazed at how repetitive I am. And it's, it's not just because I'm boring and lazy. I mean, that's partially it, but, but it's also because the, um, a lot of these problems, um, they work again and again and again, and they, and they work because they lead to open-ended thinking, um, because they're not little discrete things. They, they, it's more, you know, it's, it's sort of like um, um, someone's, this is a bad analogy, but it's someone saying, how do you get fit? What uh, I, I need to go to a website to find all the right exercises, and I, I'm here. I'm misusing. I'm using the word exercise in a, a different way. You know, like, and and you know, there's really only a, a few things you need to know about getting fit, and you do them again and again and again. But each time you do it, it's different, and it and it's still good for you. It's a bad analogy, though, so cancel that. Of of all the problems um, that we've done in our uh, math circle, both immersion workshops and monthly meetings. The one I, I particularly liked the most that we did in the training was called Grid Power. Um, and it was so elegant in the fact that she, uh, Tatiana, I believe her name is. That's is right. That right. Yes. Um, she gave us just a, a, you know, one centimeter by one centimeter grid paper. And um, she told this story about how 
she would just stare up at her ceiling that was this sort of lattice grid pattern. And she would just think of questions related to a grid and just be curious about a grid that we all take for granted. And what we were then tasked with was to come up with as many questions as we could about a grid in seven minutes. And it was just so cool to think about this brain dump about um, anything that you could access um, individually about your math skill set that you're curious about. And, um, you know, some people ask questions about measurement. Um, you know, how many sheets of grid paper would you need if you laid them around the surface of a globe along the equator? And others asked really deep questions about, um, you know, number theoretic ideas or graph theory. And it was cool just having this, the chance to step back and ask questions that you're curious about, but then have a chance to share with others. Um, and then we explored those questions that we were interested in. We had to make some careful decisions. But um, I think a good problem really gets to the heart that it's individualized, but also something you can share. When I was uh, thinking about problems uh, the past couple of days to prepare for this, um, I, I just was jotting down some notes, and I kept returning to Tatiana's grid power thing. And in fact, I think it's because my notes were on, on like a, a grid paper notebook. Um, and uh, maybe it inspired me, but um, but I I because one thing that you know the get the getting the right comfort level for a problem is important. And one thing that's nice about problems involving graph paper or grid paper is that you are given a structure that you can live in, and so you have a reduced set of rules. And and uh, it's some it's it's easier it's easier to play the. It's sort of like if a parent says, "Hey, okay, kids, go play." And then they, they say, we don't know what to do, we're bored. And they say, here, play with this ball. Then they can make up a game. And so it's, so graph paper is like that. And, and uh, one thing that uh, I was in Kansas just two weeks ago um, uh, working with uh, the Heartland Math Teacher Circle, and um, I did a, uh, a, a sequence of, uh, of, of problems with them um, that was designed just to get them to to uh, um, learn the moral graph paper is good um, and and there's many kinds of problems that work this way but uh, um, so one is one of my favorite all-time problems um, maybe not my maybe it's Vaughn's favorite also but it's a, a problem where you have three frogs on three vertices of a square and uh, so one vertex doesn't have a frog, and then every minute a frog will, you know, a random frog will, will pick a random frog and jump over that frog and in a perfect mathematical way so that the, the jumper is, uh, the jumpee is the midpoint of the line segment that the jumper makes. So it's this perfect mathematical jump. And so you, and the question is, will a frog ever occupy the, the vertex that didn't have a frog to start? So it's a fun question, and it's, but if you don't know, if you don't think about graph paper, it's very hard to investigate it. And so it's a good problem to get people thinking because at some point somebody might think, wow, maybe we should do this on graph paper. And, and then you have a good discussion about, you know, why graph paper, why graph paper is important. And, and then there's other problems that have absolutely nothing to do with this original problem, but where, again, one of the main ideas is, is if you've used graph paper, you instantly get more information, and uh, and 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 this gets uh, people thinking at this kind of higher level that 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 many people are not used to. Most people are just used to sort of thinking a problem is a struggle, and it doesn't involve any strategy. But the 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 act of picking the proper venue for investigating a problem is 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 part of the solution, and that's that's really a new idea for many people. Josh, I don't know if you talked about this, but it really resonated with me at the training as well. Um, Nobification. Yeah, that was me. Have I'll talk about that. that Could you Can share you talk about that some right here? Oh, okay. Uh, so what is the word? I'm sorry. What is the word? So nobification, uh, applying, like introducing knobs to a problem. So once you have a problem oh. that you're working on, you know, one thing that you'll want to do to help you solve it is see if you can find any knobs that you can turn down and set to an easier level so that you can get an answer more quickly and start to build up strategies that might help you when you're solving the harder problem. So it could be a problem-solving strategy, but then 
it's also not just for making problems easier, but when you're done solving a problem, you can introduce some knobs and start creating new problems that are related to the one that you solved by saying, oh, well, what if I change this function? Or, you know, to take Paul's frog jumping problem, what if they weren't vertices of a square but some other shape? Or so on like that. So you introduce some knobs. What can you adjust in this problem to make a new, uh, a new problem that's going to challenge you? So, so you can use them to make things easier to help you get kick-started in your solving, and you can use them to vary things, to create some new problems and get into the question of where do new problems come from. A lot of times a new problem comes from applying a knob to some problem that, that you saw someplace else. Or, of course, a lot of times my favorite problems come from just plain, out, plain old stealing them from some other good source, such as the one Fonz suggested. So what's an example what, of... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Fon. Oh, uh, just uh, what Josh just said um, reminds me of what I read on Avery Pickford's um, blog, and he mentioned um, one of the characteristics of a good problem is to be able to scale it sideways, and when you talk about different knobs, and <laughs> you can turn on and off, yeah, just scaling it sideways. I mean, we talk about digging deep into the problem, going deeper and deeper, but I just liked the word sideways, all these tangents that it can take. And also what Josh has brought up about um, allowing kids, allowing people, participants to, you know, not just um, work on that one problem, but allow them to think about other problems and creating discovery and creating the problems. That's that's pretty rich. It's like wow, this just you know, blossom into something else. So, uh, Fawn, what's an example of one of your favorite problems? Oh God! Well, Tatiana's the grid, the, the grid, grid one. I actually yeah. presented. Yeah, I actually took that, stole that wholesale, and presented at um, CMC in Palm Springs. And the mistake was, it's in front of two hundred people. It's like <laughs> that's not conducive to. I was hoping just people, but oh my gosh, um, there the the car talk talk website. Do you know that car talk website? Car talk. Um, it's on. Uh -huh. Yeah, Dan Anderson um, takes some of those. So I take from Dan Anderson, who Oops, I think she fixed. Josh, what is the web? The New York Times. What am I thinking of, Josh? Number Play. Number Play. Right number Play, thank you. So Number Play has a bunch of favorites. Brianna, I have a whole bunch. I can't, I don't know. <laughs> see. I can, oh, I can. Josh, how about you? <laughs> Are you talking about sources of problems? No, just your just an example of a favorite problem. An example of a favorite and, problem. And that maybe illustrates something else about good problems, you know, that we want to Yeah, so from. one that I traditionally use at the start of math teacher circles um, is you start with cards with the numbers one through a hundred written on them. And you have a machine that eats two cards and it spits out a card with the product plus the sum. So if you feed it, for example, 2 and 5, the product of 2 and 5 is 2 times 5 is 10, 2 plus 5 is 7, product plus sum is 10 plus 7, which is 17. And so you get a new card with a 17 on it after the machine eats your 2 and your 5 cards. And so the question is, what happens in the long run? And the immediate things that people discover that they don't always appreciate the value of these easy discoveries enough, I think, is, well, the machine eats two cards and it spits out one, so after a while you're running out of cards and you get down to just one card. So once you realize that as the first little problem to solve is that, well, what happens in the long run is you get stuck with just one card and then you can't feed the machine anymore, then the question becomes, well, what can use number might be on that last card? You know, is it odd or even? Is it... Uh, how big is it going to be? What's the biggest or the smallest it could be? And uh, I, I usually also like to do a lot of problem posing with that, and I get questions like, are there cards that can never be spat out of the machine but can only be inputs to the machine? So, for example, if you try to get 36 out of the machine, you'll see that it's quite problematic to get it, and then the question becomes, why can't you get 36 as the output of this machine? Um, so that's, that's probably one of my favorite problems. Um, and there's also a good collection I've accumulated that I've stolen from a wide range of sources at the Julia Robinson Math Festival website. 
you can find a whole bunch of good problems there. And also at the, um, of course, at the Math Teacher Circle website, we have something close to 100 sets of problems there also. So there's plenty of good sources that you can steal from. And I think that's really the fundamental lesson is just find a really good source and then steal liberally from there. That's great. So one of the things that um, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about today also is um, the ways that really good problems can support differentiated learning in kind of whatever setting, like if you're in a math teacher circle or a classroom, you know, I think that there are, you know, some characteristics of good problems that really lend themselves to, you know, working with um, learners who are kind of like in all different places. And I was wondering if any of you could speak to that a little bit. Just immediately I have a story about my, um, he, he was at part uh, in the classroom and part out. It was in the resource kit. It was resource kit and we did uh, the sheep and the wolves. And I think we started with a five by five. And uh, you know, this I got the problem from Math Teacher Circle. And he was the first one to get it, and it just—he just beamed, and he knew. But we knew we had a culture of, you know, you're not bragging about it; you just move on. You know, I, I gave him something else to do related to the problem, and um, I think we changed the number of sheep um, versus wolves. And yeah, so he continued working, but just when he moved on to the next problem, the extension of it, he was just—you can just see the smile just stayed on his face because he was a resource kid, and and he knows that, and the class knows it, and yeah, and uh, so. I always remember that. That just like brought me to tears. Just yeah, and at moments like that, you you. This is why we do problem solving. It's not necessarily differentiated learning, but I think it appeals to what makes a good problem. And really, the spirit, or one of the spirits of the math teacher circle, is a wide range of abilities, backgrounds, experiences. Um, that sort of that transparency or even that fear of status, which we all face in classrooms, sort of dissolves away. Um, and I researched that a bit um, for the PhD that's very nascent that I started that's probably going to take me a decade. But um, I'm really interested in math teacher circles in that, in that notion of status and how that relates to our own classrooms with students. But um, a really good problem is one that's so accessible that based on the discourse in, in the room, you can't really tell who the PhD in math is versus the third grade teacher. Everyone has something to input. Um, and you know, I, I can think of a number of instances where, you know, just walking around as a facilitator hearing really cool things, and in the back of my head, I'm like, wait, that that fourth grade teacher um, you know, just gave a really cool connection to something that a high school teacher didn't see. Um, so I think problem posing in particular, which we may want to define for those that might not be familiar with that, is, as Josh alluded to a bit, I think it's it's so powerful in that you're giving a context to situation, and often in a math class, we're the ones posing the problem. We give the prompt, the, the situation, and then we say, you know, find the number of marbles or whatever. Uh, find f of 3, when it's so much powerful to uh, more powerful to put that in the hands of the participants to, to have them pose questions that they think are curious about that space. And in our own circle, we just sort of organically came up with this norm. We call a level one question one that you already know the answer to, which we've sort of defined it as an exercise. But we talked about in our circle how it's powerful to gain access to a problem, to sometimes ask questions you already know the answer to just to get familiar, or maybe that's a special case and you know that you understand that. And a level two question is one that you may not know the answer to, but you feel you, you have an approach to a strategy, um, but not necessarily know where that's going to lead. So um, an example of that might be, um, you know, I, I know it's maybe related to this idea, but I, I've never solved this problem before. I don't know what's going to happen. And then a level three question is one we don't even necessarily know how to start, which we said really defines a problem versus an exercise. And um, that sort of language really has helped participants and facilitators to sort of tease out um, how we categorize questions that we have um, for the problem that's posed. A story that I've uh, um, 
told uh, before, which I read years and years ago, like maybe 30, 30 years ago in an educational magazine when I was a high school teacher, was comparing um, kids in a gifted class with kids in a remedial class, and the teacher asked both classes to, uh, and this was before the internet, so this is like you know, 32 years ago, to find the weight of a giraffe. And the gifted kids were, the, or the kids in the gifted class, let me be precise, the kids in the, you know, in the gifted and talented class were very um, nervous about getting the right answer. And they really wanted to go to the library to an encyclopedia to look up the weight of a giraffe. And the teacher said, no, 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 you, we give you a giraffe. How do you find out its weight? And they just didn't know what to do because they, they didn't, they just, you know, they wanted an answer. They couldn't get an answer. And in, in, in the remedial class, some kid just said, just cut the, the uh, giraffe up with a chainsaw and, and weigh the chunks. And, um, and it's a very, it's very good problem solving idea. And it shows that, that breaking rules and sort of thinking about um, trying to make yourself uninhibited uh, is, is, is a, you know, that's again a story with a moral. The moral isn't that you should cut up giraffes, but the moral is that you should, you should try to think of outrageous things. And, and um, that's a nice thing about problems in general, that they, I won't say they're an equalizer between sort of the, the conventionally talented kids and the, the, the children who are labeled as, 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 as less gifted learners, but there, there often is an equalization that can happen because um, knowing a lot is much less important than sometimes just being brave or or uh, uninhibited or just trying to just trying to work hard um, I think also problems it's it's important to move the the type of problems around um, a lot of kids are good at computation and algebraic thinking and other people are good at geometric thinking that two weeks ago when I was in Kansas uh, one of the activities was just playing with tangrams and I really enjoyed it but I was one of the slowest people there. You know, I'd sit at my table and almost everyone would, would figure out the, 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 the things before I did. Um, and uh, the, my only talent is that I didn't feel bad that I was slow because I'm, I'm used to just not understanding things. Um, but, um, you know, people, but, but for people who felt algebraically challenged, being able to, to move fast with tangrams really gives them a lot of confidence. And, and I think that's important. You know, one thing that's important as, as teachers is you do want your students, and when I say students here, I mean children more than grown-up teachers, but you want your students to be um, thinking hard and engaging hard with problems, but you, you do want them to be successful at least some of the time because other, otherwise their confidence will start to wane. So, you know, as a teacher, that's, again, one of the, the things where you need to, to engineer it really carefully by by gauging your audience in such a way that you can be fairly sure that at least some kids will be solving some problems some of the time. And also I want to, um, because in the classroom, I mean, the, traditionally, it's the fastest, right? The fastest one with the correct answers, raising their hand, you know, are considered smart, and that somehow turns off all the other rest of the kids. And um, problem solving allows them this safe, really safe environment. You know, I tell the kids, if you can get the answer that I give, the problem solving in five minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, then I'm sorry, I've, I did not give you a really good problem. That was just pretty shitty that you got it right away. That was not very challenging. Um, and so I like to be stuck. And it's, um, it sounds strange, but it's kind of my defense mechanism. arithmetic from Vietnamese to English so you know like 3 times 5 is 15 to you immediately but for me is 3 times 5 is okay ba nhang nam lam mui lam okay so 15 so that's my excuse there's so with problem solving I'm oh I'm supposed to take time with this and uh, yeah so that's just you know it makes it like okay you know I'm looking around the room nobody's done and, and it's, it's a good thing first for the first time I'm honored that I'm taking time with something and that's you know, traditionally not in a regular math classroom when kids just feel dumb. You know, I felt dumb because I don't have the first the answers right away. Josh or Chris, do you have anything that you wanted to add about um, working with 
you know, just learners who, you know, bring different perspectives to the problems, have different backgrounds. Um, what are the benefits for using this kind of rich, good problem with sort of a diverse group of people? Well, to take the example of the problem that I mentioned earlier, at the beginning, it's you feed the machine two cards with numbers on them, and you get out a card with the product plus the sum. This is a good computational exercise for kids who are pretty fluent with their arithmetic, but it could be problematic for kids who are still learning about adding and multiplying. And you know, so just playing around with the machine at the beginning can be some useful practice and learning for kids who don't already know their computational skills very well. And so you're providing that kind of practice with skills that you want to build, but it's embedded in the context that makes sure that the kids who've already mastered those skills aren't going to get bored because there's this bigger problem going on that they're thinking about and curious about and trying to solve. And so you're giving that practice without making it feel like, oh, here's a drill sheet, this is going to be boring. And you're giving that practice in a way that uh, makes sure that the kids who have already mastered those skills have something interesting to think about. Yeah, I would add, uh, Dan Meyer says, you know, we want everyone to sort of be a part of the country club. Um, it, a really accessible task is one where maybe those that are perceivably uh, successful in the traditional sense with math of fast computation, know the formulas, memorization, et cetera, um, it's an unknown space, so that challenges them uh, to produce that mindset um, of perseverance, et cetera. But then those students that aren't traditionally successful um, in this space where they can just play, as Josh said, um, everyone has something that they can contribute. And especially when you're working not with like grade seven students, which have an array of different experiences and um, potential um, you know, problems that they can explore or different ways that they approach that problem. But now you're working with, say, a pre-K teacher all the way up through graduate students or, you know, PhD mathematicians, um, there it's, it's potentially even a bigger uh, challenge and a good problem really makes everyone um, have the chance to participate and grow. So I, I think a math circle really illustrates that differentiated learning um, perfectly. Great. Well, um, I was wondering, if, I mean, do any of you have anything else that's sort of on your mind about good problems that you really want to share? We have a few more minutes, but we're starting to um, come up on the hour. Oh, I I'm just want to mention, sorry, I'm sorry, go. Paul, go ahead. No, you go first. Um, hello. I'm trying to lost my thought. What we we were asking ourselves, what makes a good problem? I'm, there was a research done. I read it somewhere. I can't remember the source, but um, she mentioned the writer mentioned um, what she in her research. She found that what mathematicians and teachers found the attributes of a good problem were not the same qualities that the students gave. That's all. I just want to throw that out. So I never asked my kids. You know. I didn't care about their opinion. This is my favorite problem, and you will do this. No, but um, yeah. So, so that just made me think about okay, what makes a good problem for us facilitators might not be what's good for kids. I mean, what the kids would think the same. I'm afraid they say, oh, it's you know the easier ones. They may they may pick as their favorite. When that might not be our goal. That's all. So I, I was just going to add another uh, problem type because the, the secret goal is to get people to investigate problems. And so one type of problem that I find is, is really fun for, for people of all ages are games um, where you're given some game with, with rules and there's, there's you know, dozens of problems of this sort and lots of sources for them. But you're given a game and the goal is to try to analyze the game to figure out you know, a winning strategy. And what makes these problems fun is that the way you investigate is just by playing a friendly game with another person. And um, I find that, that kids usually like these a lot. And, and um, uh, so, again, if people are looking for, for, um, for 
particular types of problems. That's you know just an easy you know just search mathematical games and and you can spend the rest of your life just investigating that. That's great. Um, so we actually have a question, an audience question, um, about how some of these ideas about good problems might uh, connect with other disciplines other than mathematics. So uh, maybe we could all think uh, think aloud about that a little bit together. Well, I think to me, I found history class really boring as a kid, and I was not at all interested in history. And I think the reason that that was, was too many of my classes, it was presented as just a big series of exercises. You know, memorize the solution to this math exercise is really similar to memorizing the dates when this happened or the timeline of that thing or the names of the people involved in signing this treaty or whatever. Um, and I find exercises, when you do them over and over again, get pretty boring. And my interest in history got sparked later on when I had some more curiosity about things, partly from my own maturity, I think, but also because I got a chance to see it presented as a problem. Well, what do you think is going to happen next? Why is that going to happen? Why do you think that's going to happen? You can ask these kinds of questions that are much more open-ended and turn the study of history into a, a series of problems about what's going to happen next and why, um, or what's going on in this situation that I think is, um, to me at least, makes it much more motivating. I mean, I think that's something maybe we didn't talk about enough about what makes a good problem is the idea that when you have that feeling of puzzlement, at least to me, that's a very intrinsically motivating thing, that if I'm confronted with something that puzzles me, I want to try to work out the puzzle. And if it's too hard, it's going to get frustrating. But if it's at the right level for me, it's so great to just feel that push of being curious and being puzzled and wanting to resolve that tension. Um, when we do these Math Teacher Circle Summer Workshops, we have uh, a brainstorming session on what makes a good problem. And uh, here's a bit of the kinds of things that we uh, come up with when we're working on that. And I think that you can see here a lot of things that, uh, you know, problem relates to old material that's taken for granted. It gives you a new way of seeing or thinking. It links to other problems, leads to more questions. I think these are all kinds of attributes of a good problem that apply just fine in any discipline, not just in mathematics. There's a, a great book that I want to uh, shout out about, uh, um, A Mathematician's Lament by Paul Lockhart. Um, and um, it's a short book, and uh, I, I highly recommend it if you haven't read it before. And a lot of people who, who don't think about math much think of math as this kind of boring, you know, like pocket protector um, scientific thing. But uh, Lockhart makes the, the point that, that um, mathematics is an art. And, and the way you succeed at art is by struggling and by obsessing. And, um, uh, and you know, artists spend most of their time, you know, n not happy with the art they're making. And that's why they're making good art. They have to make art, and they have to think about it, and they're always trying to get better. And, and mathematics really isn't any different. And so the, the problem-solving mode is one where you are uh, ideally joyously struggling. I mean, you, you, know, you don't want to torture your students, but you want them to, to really internalize the fact that, that struggling is good in any artistic endeavor. Oh yeah, so so uh, here's a here here's an, another word that that um, my friends in Kansas coined uh, three years ago, uh, which is a nice uh, encapsulation of, of problem solving, and it's the the phrase funstration. It's a little hard to say, but it it really encapsulates uh, what problem solving is all about. There's even T-shirts, not very many, but there are funstration T-shirts that are produced in Kansas. Um, curiously enough, uh, math circles 
at least in Columbus, um, we're, we're getting quite a lot of popularity for the teacher circle that uh, we were approached with trying to open that up to a full STEAM circle, so science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And that hasn't started yet, but I think a lot of uh, the design cycle in science and engineering of um, you know, how you try to understand a context and do something and then think about that process and refine it and then do something else. I think uh, the art of problem solving is very much that. Um, and you know, as Paul said, uh, the mathematician's lament says, suppose we taught math, um, suppose we taught art like we traditionally do math in that, um, or music, where you know, all we have is people push around notes and write notation on a staff and never let students have the opportunity to play that music they're writing. Um, and it's pretty shocking, you know, you, you, even on the flight here, hey, what do you do? I teach math. Oh my god, like, uh, I, how do you do that? Or math is my worst subject. And I think math circles in general, both with students and teachers, really try to promote math as this art form um, that, you know, we, we're not there yet with society is of really understanding math is something that has beauty and elegance that you can um, just play with for the sake of curiosity. So we have a lot of work to do, but uh, I think funstration is a good way to think of it. Anything you wanted to add about connecting with other um, disciplines? Well, just um, I, I think it's so important to stress the social aspect of problem solving. We talked earlier about being able to talk about a problem, but just for kids to be able to, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, uh, kids in terms of communication, you know, um, we have kids who say, "Well, I don't know how I got it," with uh, the more arithmetic worksheet type, or you know, they just have it. Said, no, honey, you need to communicate. Communication is important, and, and social being socially um, adapt is important. And uh, yeah, and then you know, you guys mentioned um, just uh, everyone can contribute, and uh, problem solving lends itself to that when you're in groups, sharing in small groups, large groups. Great, thank you so much. Um, so we're almost out of time, so we just wanted to take this last minute to thank our guests and to thank all of you watching. Um, if you want to keep up to date on future opportunities, uh, you can sign up for the monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org, and you can follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at, at innovates underscore ed. Um, and, um, you can, if you're interested in learning more about Math Teacher Circles, um, you can check out our website at mathteachercircle.org. And I think some of the other resources mentioned in this conversation um, will also show up on the website for this uh, webinar. So um, thanks again.